Um, if you've been following along with us in our Christology series, now we are at the point of the life and ministry of Christ where we love to talk about. We love to talk about the death of Jesus Christ. Um, we sing about it. We read books about it. There are many theories about what actually happened on the cross. There's many things that Christ says on the cross that are very mysterious to us. Um, so we're in that right now. And last time we were together, we talked about the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ. And that Christ's sacrifice is not him jumping on the grenade of God's wrath. Therefore, the Father's wrath is appeased. But rather, Jesus Christ offers to the Father a perfect demonstration of love, a perfect demonstration of one who knows they have offended God. Mind you, Christ himself doesn't offend God, but he does it for his mystical body. He offers to God a perfect demonstration of love, a perfect heart that is cut, and an outward sacrifice that is a pleasing aroma to him. So we want to think of the sacrifice of Christ as of a pleasing aroma where the Father looks down and there never was a time when he was more pleased at the Son. That's how we are to think of the sacrifice of Christ. And as you heard this uh, earlier, um, there was a text that I sent out to some of the guys, all the guys, and it was basically talking about different theories of the atonement. Simply, what happened on the cross? How does finite man, how does finite man be reconciled to God? And how does the cross play uh, a part of that? There's many theories we can look at. Um, we'll do that soon. But for us, Reformed, uh, we hold to what is called penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning punishment. Substitutionary meaning going in the place of someone, atonement, to reconcile two parties together. Okay? Penal, Jesus Christ, pays the penalty of our sin. He's punished on our behalf. Right? Substitutionary, he doesn't do it for himself, but he does it on, the, on behalf of his elect. Jesus was never a sinner. He never dies for his own sins, but he dies for his own and atonement. By the death of Jesus Christ, he reconciles us to the Father. Now, I think penal substitutionary atonement is the biblical model of how we are to think of the atonement. The problem with the penal substitutionary atonement theory is this, though. We want to push it too far. We want to push it too far to where it becomes heretical and unbiblical. And one of the ways we do that is by asking, how does Jesus satisfy the wrath of God? How does Jesus satisfy the wrath of God? This is how many penal substitutionary uh, Christians talk about the atonement. Well, they confess that Christ satisfies the wrath of God. We confess that. However, what many want to do is they push it to the place where the father turns his face away from the son in anger and vengeance. That's pushing it too far. Or 
that's on the cross, the father willfully and angrily acts toward the son. Where there's this like this metaphysical, invisible, spiritual wrath that's just being poured out from heaven onto the son. So not only does Christ um, go through physical ab- uh, pain, right? The nails and all that. Social abandonment, his friends leave him, but also spiritual abandonment and spiritual pain. I think we must conf- uh, deny that as well. Sometimes when we speak of Christ satisfying God's wrath, the picture is almost that of a God uh, being a man who is angry for some legitimate uh, reason, mainly because, let's say, his wife cheated on him. The father is angry, and he's about to hit his wife, and Jesus pushes the wife out the way, and he gets hit instead. That's how many think of how Christ satisfies the wrath of God. Well, what we want to do this evening is we want to look at how Christ satisfies the wrath of God. How does Christ satisfy the wrath of God? If it's none of these models that we considered, and we will look at these models next time we're together, um, but if it's none of these things, how does Christ satisfy the wrath of God? Well, first let's answer, what do we mean by the wrath of God? What do we mean by the wrath of God? We hear it a lot, do we not? It's something that probably scares us, the wrath of God, right? Um, what do we mean? What do we mean when we predicate wrath to God? Well, there's three kinds of ways in which we can speak of predication, okay? The first way is equivocal. The second way is univocal. And the third is analogical. Equivocal, univocal, and analogical. The first way is equivocal, which means the reference of the terms do not mean the same thing. The reference of the terms do not mean the same thing. Let me give you an example. The pitcher is a bat. There's a pitcher and there's a bat on there. Think of a Louisville slugger bat, right? A wooden bat. The animal flying is a bat. Is it the same bat? Is the Louisville slugger pitcher that bat the same as the one that's flying that almost uh, ate Senior alive <laughs> last time? We were, remember the bat that was flying um, last time we were all together at night? No, it's not the same thing, right? The bat on the wall is different than the bat that's flying. That's equivocal language. There's also univocal language, which means the reference of the terms is of the same thing. Let me give you an example. Isaiah is a man. Anthony is a man. Now, are we two different types of men? No. <laughs> the madness of Isaiah and the madness of Anthony are the same thing. There's no difference. Now, he might be more macho man than me, but we're still man, right? And then there's analogical language. This is helpful for our study this evening, which means that there is a real proper proportion between things, but the reference is not the same thing. That there is a real proper proportion between things, but the reference is not the same thing. Example, Paul and his dog are healthy. Is the health of the dog and the health of Paul the same thing? Yes and no. Or, the steak was good, or I should say, the leftover Filipino food I had this evening was good, after church, and the sermon that Pastor Antonio preached this morning was good. 
Is the goodness of the food that I had the same thing as the goodness of the sermon? Yes and no. There is a real proper proportion, but they don't mean the same thing. Right? When we speak of the wrath of God, what kind of predication are we using? Well, before we answer that question, let's remember who God is. And our confession says, among many things, that God is without passions. God is without passions. A passion is simply an undergoing or a happening to. So when you experience love, you are undergoing the passion, a happening to, of love. It's an emotional experience that brings to its subject a new state of actuality that was not previously present. For example, when one falls in love, they are falling in love and they are experiencing a new effective state of love that comes to exist in the subject that previously, was, previously wasn't there. You know this well. Before you met your mate, you weren't in love with your mate. April, I've got to pick on you because you did that. No. <laughs> but before you met your mate, you weren't in love with them, right? You were compelled and you were wooed to love. And the more you started to know them, the more you started to fall in love with them. So the passion of love came upon you. Right? When we fall in love with someone, there is some movement or alteration that has taken place in the human lover. Right? You went from non-love to love. Then you go to love to more love, to more love to more love. But this can't be said of God. There is no, quote-unquote, more love that God can possess. We also have to say that there is no anger in God. There is no anger in God. Because that would imply a change in state within God. He would go from being not angry to being angry. Or being angry and then being appeased. And this is how many Christians want to define the wrath of God. Quite honestly. I've met... I've read many modern blog posts, and they want to define the wrath of God as the anger of God. Simply put, like there's a one-to-one -one connection between our anger and God's anger. But saints, this is not how we think of the anger of God. Here we go. When the Bible speaks of God being angry, it is similar to the sort of language which describes God as having hands having arms, having feet, having wings. Does God have wings? Does God have hands? Does he have feet? No, he's a spirit. He doesn't have any of those things. He's without body. This language is anthropomorphic. That is, speaking of God as if he was a creature. So they ascribe hands to God to show or to condescend to our way of thinking, to describe how he is. So when he saves Israel with his uh, mighty hand and outstretched arm, right? It's speaking of the great lengths and the great power that God has in salvation. Not that he literally has a big hand and a big old, you know, elastic outstretched arm. Anger and wrath are not attributes of God. They are not attributes of God. 
They're not like love or mercy. Because we don't want to say that God was, from all eternity, angry. Or from all eternity, he was wrathful. Because what could he be angry about? What could he be wrathful towards? So we don't say that anger and wrath are attributes of God. Thomas Aquinas says, wrath is not properly an attribute of God. We speak of anger not in God, not as of a passion of the soul, but as of judgment of justice. So what do we mean when we say the wrath of God or the anger of God? If it doesn't mean that God is angry like we get angry, or if it doesn't mean that um, anger and wrath is an attribute of God, like love or justice or mercy is an attribute of God, what do we mean? The wrath of God is analogical language. Not equivocal, not univocal, it's analogical. To speak of God's anger or wrath is to speak of God's dispositive will to impose a just, just punishment for sin. To speak of God's anger or wrath is to speak of God's dispositive will to impose a just punishment for sin. In other words, God's wrath is an outward expression of God's holiness and justice in response to sin. An outward expression of his justice. John Owen says this, So God's purpose of demonstration of his justice is called his being willing to show forth his wrath or anger. So God's anger and his judgments are placed together. In that anger he judges. When we speak of the anger of God, his wrath, and his being appeased towards us, we speak after the manner of men, meaning God doesn't really have wrath, but it's just speaking to us in a way that we can understand. But yet, by the allowance of God himself, not that God is properly angry or properly altered from that state of appeased, uh, whereby he should properly be mutable and be actually changed, but by the anger of God, which sometimes in Scripture signifies his justice, from whence punishment proceeds. What Owen is saying is the wrath of God is an outward expression of the justice of God. Let me give you an example. Let's say we have a criminal. He comes to the courtroom. He stands in front of the judge. Okay? Let's say the criminal has done a really, really bad thing. What is the judge's job to do? The judge's job is to render judge, judgment and justice. Right? Now, how does the judge render this justice to the criminal? How is it seen? Does he simply look at the criminal and say, justice, and then we're done? No. That justice takes an outward expression. And what? Go to jail. Pay a fine. Right? That is how justice is seen. That is why we get excited when we hear of these sentences from people who do bad things, because we know justice has been served. So going to jail or paying a fine or doing whatever that the judge says you are to do, that is an outward expression of justice. And that's how we are to think of the wrath of God. It's an outward expression of his justice, right? Because his justice is eternal. Right? And because God is just, we owe him a due payment for satisfaction. And this is what many Christians leave out when they consider who God is. Yes, God is love. And we are to confess from all eternity that God is love. 
But we can't dismiss the facts that God is holy and God is just. He is holy and he is just. And they're not, they're not two sides of the coin. Right? They're not in, in odds with each other. But they're one and the same thing. That he's lovingly holy and lovingly just. Exodus 34, 6-7 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Praise God to that. We all quote that. But it also says, By who will by no means clear the guilty? We love God being love, but we also have to love God for being holy and just. Sin will not be passed by God. When Adam sinned in the garden, we became condemned. And when Adam sinned, we owed to God a payment in order to satisfy divine justice. You see, when Adam sinned in the garden and when they covered Adam in skins, he didn't do that for every single person. We still owe to God a just payment for our sin. Consider what the canons of Dort say. God is not only supremely merciful, but also supremely just. His justice requires that the sins that we have committed against his infinite majesty be punished with both temporal and eternal punishments of soul as well as body. We cannot escape these punishments unless satisfaction is given to God's justice. There is no place where we can hide from God's punishments. The only way that we can escape God's infinitely just punishment for sin is through satisfaction or the satisfaction of his justice. We need to appease him. Now let's answer the question, how does Jesus satisfy the justice of God? How does he do this? How does he satisfy the wrath or the justice of God? When we speak of satisfaction, Richard Muller says this, it means making amends or reparation, specifically the making amends for sin required by God for forgiveness to take place. So to satisfy, to make satisfaction is to repair, to make up what someone did wrong. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. At the heart of satisfaction is reconciliation. Reconciliation for two parties to be one. And there have been many theories of how Jesus can satisfy the justice of God. How does Jesus satisfy the justice of God? and reconcile us to the Father. The Roman Catholic Church says satisfaction comes through faith and obedience as well as participation in the sacraments and suffering in purgatory. That's how satisfaction comes about to Roman Catholics. The Eastern Orthodox Church says we grow more and more like the divine, light, divine in this life through mystical union, through the liturgy and sacraments until one day we are united to the divine. I know, sort of weird. <laughs> the average person says, even Christian says, that we can earn our way to God by just being a good person. 
Essentially, these three systems all say one thing, that man can earn their way to God. That there is something inherently in man that he can do to reconcile himself to God. That man in himself can offer a satisfaction to God. And God would look and say, well done. That is a pleasing aroma to me. How do we respond to this? The canons of Dort say this. Since, however, we ourselves cannot give the satisfaction or deliver our, ourselves from God's anger, God in his boundless mercy has given to us a guarantee, his only begotten son, who was made to be sin and a curse for us in our place on the cross in order that he might give satisfaction for us. Can man earn anything from God? Can you, before you came to Christ, make a satisfaction that is pleasing to God, that satisfies his justice and wrath? The Bible is crystal clear. No one can do that. Isaiah 64, 6, we all have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. If you're doing evangelism or talking to others who think that they are righteous, quote that. <laughs> Man cannot satisfy the justice of God. And hear this. Not because man can't do enough. It's not that. But man can't satisfy the justice of God because of the value of the offering. Man cannot satisfy the justice of God because of the value of the offering. Saints, why is it that people deserve an eternity in hell because they sinned in Adam? Why is that? One sin for all eternity, now you must go to hell. Why is that? Isn't that strange? The reason is because when Adam sinned in the garden, he sinned against an infinite, eternal person. And when he sinned against this infinite, eternal person, he deserves an infinite, eternal punishment. You sin against one who is eternal, then your punishment is eternal. We know this in our legal system, right? The punishment must fit the crime. If you steal a pack of gum in the store, you shouldn't go away for life. <laughs> you shouldn't be put on death row. But if you murder someone, then now you must spend your life in jail or go to death row and give your life. There must be a one-to-one -one correspondence and relation between the punishment and the crime. So in our case, how do we make satisfaction to an infinite, eternal God? That is what should, when you're in your evangelism, when you're preaching to many of your co-workers and whoever is not saved, this should grip their conscience. How can you, brother and sister, make a satisfaction that is appeasing or that pleases an infinite God, what can you offer to him? What can you do? <clears throat> How can an infinite amount of debt be removed from our account? We're in the hole with God. We have a, a, an infinite zero balance or infinite balance. John the Baptist gives us the answer in John 1.26. 
The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice, though, that he says, The Lamb of God who takes away not the sins of the world, but the sin of the world. Jesus is the only answer to satisfaction and reconciliation. He's the only one who could remove the infinite debt that we owe to God to satisfy the justice of God. Now, how does Jesus do this? How does Jesus satisfy the justice of God? What makes him able to satisfy the justice of God? What about Jesus? There are some that will say that Jesus satisfies the wrath of God because the wrath of God is poured out on him on the cross. Think of the wrath, and, and they think of the wrath of God like a jar. And, and, and God is just emptying the jar of wrath upon Jesus until the jar is just empty and there's no more, and then the Father is satisfied. That's how many people think of Christ satisfying the wrath of God. There were some that say that Jesus satisfies the, satisfies the wrath of God uh, because of his perfect life that he lived, and then he dies on the cross. He lived just a good life, did all that was required of the law. He dies, and he's fine. That's all that God wanted. I think there is some truth to that, but I will say primarily Jesus satisfies the wrath of God because of the great value and worth of his person. Jesus satisfies the wrath of God because of the great value and worth of his person. Canons of Dort say this, the death of God's son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. And hear this, it is of, of, it is of an infinite value and worth more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. Meaning, if Jesus wanted to die for every single person in the world, then he could do that. It's not as if Jesus had to bleed a little bit more, and then he can save more people. In fact, if you read John Owen, John Owen would say, if God created an infinity amount of worlds, then Jesus' death was sufficient to save every single person in that world. The death of Christ is of such great value and worth for the reason that the person who suffered is not only truly human, but also is the only begotten Son of God. So when we see Christ on the cross, yes, he is man, but also he is very God of very God. And because Christ is an infinite person, his suffering is of infinite value. One drop of blood, in fact, you have even some of the patristics, church fathers would say, even in Christ's circumcision as a baby, the blood that was spilled in that circumcision was enough to atone for the sins of the whole world. Because he's the God-man. He's God who came in the flesh. Richard Moeller explains the source of the merit of Christ is found in the person of Christ. Since the person is the divine word, the infinite second person of the Trinity, the work performed by that person, even though accomplished through the instrumentality of his human nature, must be infinite. In other words, even though Christ suffers as man, 
His suffering is of infinite worth because he's a divine person. Example. Which is more valuable if gifted to you? A ring from Tiffany & Co. or a ring pop from Fairfax Market? (laughs) Which is more valuable if you lost it? Which one will make you go crazy? Tiffany's or the ring pop? Tiffany's, right? Now, why is it that Tiffany's would make you go crazy and not the ring pop? Because there is intrinsic value in this diamond as opposed to this. Not because it's from Tiffany's, but because the diamond itself is unique. There's something about that diamond that makes it valuable and worth something. In in the case of Christ, he perfectly satisfies the infinite justice of God by offering what? His infinite self. He satisfies the infinite justice of God that you can never do. Why? Because you're not of infinite value. Who are you? So what if you completed and fulfilled the Ten Commandments? What's that going to get you? So what if you died? What is that going to get you? There's no worth to it. Peter speaks of Christ's blood as precious, without spot or defect. Thomas Aquinas makes this clear. Christ, by suffering out of love and obedience, hear this, gave to God more than what was required to compensate for the offenses of the whole human race. First, by reason of the tremendous charity from which he suffered. Second, by reason of the dignity of his life, which he gave up in atonement. And for this was the life of one who was both God and man. Third, on the account of the extent of the passion and greatness of the sorrow suffered. And so Christ's passion was not merely sufficient, but a superabundant atonement for the sins of the whole human race. Simply put, not only was Christ's sacrifice sufficient, but it was super abundant. It was without bounds, without limits. It was more than enough. Let me give you an illustration, and I've used this before. When a man has sinned against his wife, there are two ways in which the man can get out of the doghouse. Two ways. First, he has to sleep on the couch. Now, why does the man have to sleep on the couch? Because sleeping on the couch... The wife sees that as a way to satisfy her anger, thereby showing forth justice. Women do that all the time, right? Okay, you slept on the couch for two years. Come back in the bed now. I forgive you. Not because you've done something, but because you slept on the couch, right? And you've, you've, you've paid enough punishment, Or secondly, to get out of the doghouse, the man offers something which the wife values more than the heinousness of the offense. He gives to the wife something more valuable than the offense. Now, this doesn't mean that he's trying to buy her back, but rather he's truly demonstrating how much he recognizes how he has wronged her and wants to demonstrate his love for her. Now, with respect to Christ... Jesus Christ doesn't sleep on the couch for us, meaning he doesn't suffer 
the wrath of God for us, in order that he may appease the wrath of God. But rather, on our behalf, he offers the perfect and most precious sacrifice, something more valuable than the crime that was committed. He offers himself. This is why John Owen says, God was more delighted and pleased with all than he was displeased and offended with all the sins of those that he suffered and offered himself for. God was more pleased with the obedience, offering, and suffering of his son than displeased with the sins and rebellions of all the elect. <laughs> Meaning, Christ more fully satisfies the justice and wrath of God in offering his infinite person as a sacrifice. God is more pleased with that demonstration of love than he is pleased with punishing the elect in hell for all eternity. That's how wives and husbands, and that's how we think of punishment, right? You suffered enough, you're fine. But that's not the case with Jesus Christ. He doesn't go to hell for us and suffer what we would have suffered in hell. But rather, he offers to God a perfect and pleasing aroma. And when God sees that sacrifice, He's delighted at that sacrifice more than those who sinned against Him and who go to hell. There's more justice served in Christ's sacrifice than the elect suffering in hell. And that is a great summary of our study today. <clears throat> We need an infinite and eternal sacrifice to counter our infinite and eternal punishment. And the great news of the gospel is that we have that infinite and eternal sacrifice in the God who became flesh, Jesus Christ. Jesus satisfies the wrath of God, not by, not by some pouring out of wrath upon him, but offers a most pleasing aroma of sacrifice, which is himself. That is how divine justice is served. Jesus says, here I am. And the Father looks upon that sacrifice, and he says, good, well done, my faithful servant. And saints, what I hope you see from this lesson is that our salvation is solely found in the person of Christ. At the heart of the gospel is the incarnation, is that God became man. And if we don't have God becoming man, then we don't have an infinite sacrifice to satisfy the infinite justice of God. That's what I learned from this study when I was going through it and reading all that I could, is that this is not of me. But this is all of Jesus Christ. And I could have done nothing to offer anything to God in order to satisfy his justice and wrath. Because I am of finite value. But there is one who is of infinite value. No one has said it best than Horatius Bonner. On merit not my own I stand... 
Undoing which I have not done, merits beyond what I can claim. Doings more perfect than my own, upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. What we have in Christ is a perfect sacrifice that the Father sees and is most pleased with because it's of infinite value. He's the most precious diamond that was in the Father's cabinet, as the Puritans would say. And what we have before us at the Lord's table is a reminder of that perfect once-for-all sacrifice. That sacrifice where he is punished on our behalf. He takes our sins and in return he gives to us his perfect righteousness. So friends, when we think of the Lord's Supper, think of the death of Christ. And think of the perfect lamb without spot, without defect, without blemish. And when you hold the body, think of your Savior who bled profusely, not because he needed to bleed in such a way so that he can appease an angry God, but only one drop of, God, of Jesus' blood will be enough to atone for the sins of the entire world. And when you think of the cup, Think that we never have to offer a sacrifice ever to God. For the cup that you hold is the cup of the new covenant that is inaugurated by the blood of Christ. Let's pray.